0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. You saved for college, for a house, and for retirement. And now that you're on your own, it's time to put yourself first. Is your money buying you the life that you want? If you're not sure, learn more by scheduling a complimentary wealth checkup today at planefe.com slash hermoney.
2: It's having an enemy that it's their fault and not us, a villain, right? That takes responsibility from us and put it on something else. And it also creates a story that the people who feel weakened all of a sudden feel empowered.
0: Hey, everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you are finding it harder these days to discern exactly what you believe when you watch or read the news, you are not alone. According to a recent Gallup study, 38% of Americans have no trust at all in newspapers, TV, and radio. And notably, this is the first time in history that the percentage of Americans with no trust at all in the media is higher than the percentage who do trust the media. In fact, because any creator can literally put just about anything on the internet, the Associated Press now has an entire section of their website dedicated to not real news where they fact check the news of the week. What brought all of this about? Well, for one thing, it's that increasingly it's not just news outlets where we get our headlines. Today, ten percent of Americans get their news from TikTok, according to the Pew Research Center. At Her Money, we have been following a growing TikTok trend where personal finance experts offer advice on what to do with our money. And some of these influencers like Vivian Two and Tori Dunlop, who we've had on the show, they are offering great advice. But there are also some bad actors who are advocating we dump all of our retirement savings into crypto. It is something to be wary of. Nearly 30% of us say that we've lost money as a direct result of financial advice we've taken from social media, according to the folks at Forbes. So how can we make sure our sources are reputable and the information we're getting is reliable? And why, Is it that we're willing to believe all of this stuff in the first place? Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He is back on the show today with advice that we need to combat misinformation. Dan is also the New York Times bestselling author of Predictably Irrational, and he is a preeminent social scientist whose TED Talks have been viewed more than 27 million times. His new book is called Misbelief What Makes Rational People Believe? Irrational things. And it delves into the growing phenomena of discarded truths, alternative facts, and full blown conspiracy theories that have driven a wedge in public discourse and our personal relationships. Dan, this is so fascinating. Welcome back to the show.
2: Lovely to be back. It's been too long.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time. So usually when I start a conversation, I'm looking forward. But today I want to start by taking a look back specifically to 2020. I know that during this time you were affected personally by some misinformation. Can you tell me what happened and how that inspired this book?
2: Yeah. So there was a day, kind of middle of 2020, when I get an email from somebody I know, And she says, Dan, how have you changed? How did you change this way? And I say, what do you mean? And she sent me an email with lots of links. When I will not describe all of them, but I'll describe one of them. So as you know, but your listeners probably don't, the reason that I have this um, half a beard is that I was badly injured. So most of my body actually, but including the right side of my face, is covered with scars. So here I don't have hair, but I have all kinds of other issues. I follow the links. And one of them shows pictures of me from hospital. They found pictures of me in hospital. And they describe how, because of my injury and because of the many years I spent in hospital, I started hating healthy people. (laughs) I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati to try and orchestrate COVID as a way to get rid of as many people as possible. And this is pre-vaccine days, and we're trying to engineer the vaccine to reduce fertility. Anyway, this is just one video, there were many more, and in the beginning, when I saw this material, I thought nobody could take this serious, but then I saw the number of followers, and the comments, and the reactions, it was truly, it was truly amazing, and my first reaction was to go and defend myself. Well, let me just explain what is going on because I did help lots of governments in the early days of COVID. You know, it was, of course, a biological problem, but social science is, was very central. How do we think about adherence to restrictions? How do we think about distant education? Uh, we had a tremendous rise around the world in domestic violence. How do we deal with that? What do we do financially? So there were lots of social science questions and I tried to help, for example, fines. Should you give people fines? What, what should you do? So I did do a lot of work on this, but not what they were saying. So I tried to defend myself. It only backfired.
0: Well, your PR team told you just ignore it, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, your PR team wanted you to do nothing and you were you said no.
2: That's right. And there was one guy who said, look, if they connect you with Bill Gates, (laughs) don't worry about it so much. But no, I felt the injustice was very tough, right? You know, yes, it was illogical to try and fight it, but the feeling of injustice was just tough. And the other thing was that I really wanted it to go away. I started getting death threats and it's kind of one thing to say, okay, you get death threats from these people, but there's something very tough about these death threats and something tough that comes at night (laughs) to haunt me. So anyway, so step one was realizing how they would describe me. Stage two, huge failure trying to argue. Stage three, I basically went underground and I joined lots of groups. And I started talking to lots of people who were on that side and just said, I'm here to understand. I'm here to understand. And, And this book is really an outcome of this attempt to understand what is going on, to describe this machinery that fits like a glove on human psychology and get us to change our beliefs in some way. It's not a simple machine, it's not very quick, but it does change people uh, quite fundamentally. It's
0: so true, and listening to you talk, I am thinking of the people in my life who are both my friends and have become believers of this misinformation. And you would think, how can they be your friends if they believe this information? But you have relationships with people who are part of your family or who have been with you since childhood. You're not just going to, I'm not just going to cast them aside because they've decided they believe things that I don't believe. Where does this come from? It can't just be social media that is creating this willingness to believe.
2: That's right. So first of all, we all have these people in our lives. And by the way, it's kind of a scary thought, but could we have become (laughs) that as well, right? It's easy to think, oh, it's us versus them. But when you start thinking about it as a psychological process, you say, could it have happened to me as well? And, And the answer, by the way, I think to a large degree is yes. So here's the process. I identify four elements that create what I call the funnel of misbelief. It starts with stress. And the stress that creates this, it's not the stress of feeling overwork or we have too many meetings and too many things. The stress is the world doesn't make sense to us. And while the world doesn't make sense to us, we have this tremendous motivation to find a story. And if you think about it, these misbeliefs are not random and they're not ridiculous. What they are is the wrong answer to a need. The people who are stressed, some people during COVID kept their jobs, uh, some people lost their jobs. Some people were worried about the health of something, some people were sad, some people were all of a sudden with stress of family. I mean, there's this thing called, we call white noise. Yeah, what's white noise? We give you a sheet of paper with dots that are either black or white, but they're randomly spaced. So it's just a sheet of paper with no shape. And then I show it to you and I say, do you see a shape? Now, what happened is that people who are stressed see more shapes. For example, even people who parachute, <laughs> when they get on a plane, they see more shapes. And just before jumping, they see more shapes. We, stress translates into a very deep need to explain the world. Now, you could say, is that the end just seeing patterns? It's not just seeing patterns. It's seeing patterns, that's one. It's having an enemy that it's their fault and not us, a villain, right? That takes responsibility from us and put it on something else. And it also creates a story that the people who feel weakened all of a sudden feel empowered. So it's not only that I understand the story and there's a villain, but I, as the person who is suffering, know something that you don't understand. Truly, really Bill Gates is, is planting this, whatever story it is. So, you can think about this kind of stress as the building blocks, the necessary condition, the fertile ground for things to start. And by the way, as people, it means that if we see somebody around us that we feel are going through a hard time, feeling hard done by, and so on, that's the time they need us. That's the time that they need us the most because they need the social support, they need somebody to help them manage their stress, they need all of those things. But that's, of course, just the building blocks. On top of that, we have cognitive processes that we can talk about, and we have personality. Not all people are as likely to, to join this as, as other people. And then we have the social part. And the social part is not just one, and it's not just social media, it's actually much more complex than that, but it kind of seals the deal. And once people get to the social part, the people who start believing in misbeliefs mm-hmm. often feel rejected by their pre-misbelief friends, and they find somebody else to, to adhere to. They find a supporting group. And there was one a terrible post on me that somebody debated whether for my crimes against humanity I should get... Uh, life in prison or public hanging. (laughs) And they had over a thousand responses. And if you just look at the responses, they were also loving. They they gave him love and you're such a good writer and you articulate my thoughts exactly. It's a very, even though when they talk about terrible things, they are very, very supportive community. And it's not for nothing. They need that support.
0: And the fact I would imagine that social media works as an echo chamber, but you get to choose who you follow and who you listen to and what you read just strengthens all of these patterns.
2: That's right. So on the cognitive side, we get to decide which media we want to listen to, right? So we have the whole world and we can decide to listen to this or to that. So that's one part. The more frightening part is not this notion of selective reading, the more frightening part from human psychology is what is called motivated reasoning. What is that? That's our ability to bend the reality to fit what we want to see. So, in a very simple way, you could think about uh, two fans of opposing sports team watching a game, there's a, there's a foul against one of them, they will never see it in the same way. right? It's not just that we select to see Channel X or channel Y, or so on. But it's about the fact that we can also bend the reality to say, oh, I knew that all along, or this really fits my my deal. But the thing about social media is that people talk about echo chambers, but echo chamber doesn't even start to describe what it really does. And I'll give you one example there's a term called shibboleth. Shibboleth is a term from the Bible. And the term was used because there were these two tribes that were fighting. And these two tribes pronounced the word slightly differently. So after one very bloody war, they would walk around and they would see people. And they didn't know if they were from their tribe or the other tribe. And they asked them to say that word. And if they said it in the correct way, in their way, it was fine. If they said it in the other way, they killed them. So that was like a password to convey identity. Now, we started using this term not as for killing and so on, but as a term that says, I'm using this word, not for the purpose of the word, I don't care about what it means, I'm using it as a signal of identity. Now, think about that. Imagine you and I are in a group of people. And let's imagine that we're in a group of whatever, people who love flowers, doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be negative, it can be, it can be positive. If we say something standard that everybody believes in, flowers makes us happy, it doesn't change our position within the group. We don't establish ourselves in any way. We don't go over the board. If we want to try to be leaders of the group, we want to seen above the fold, we have to say something really extreme. Like we can say, I am putting flowers in every room. Or people who don't understand flowers, uh, just something is wrong with them, or whatever we say. And if you think about it, That means that groups plus this shibboleth creates really extreme expressions. So it's not just what we read. It's the participatory nature and the extremity that is created. So now we have people who are trying to, everybody is trying to outdo the other people to become more extreme. And they're saying things that they know are not true but are used as a way to indicate belongingness to the group.
0: And to rise in status in that group. Yeah. You had mentioned that there were some people that are more susceptible to this than others. I understand it tends to be people under stress, but are there other types of people who are more likely to go down this road?
2: Yes. So first of all, it's important to understand that it's just about being more likely. It doesn't mean that if you don't have that, you'll say, oh, I'm I'm immune. It does make it more likely, but it's not like a guaranteed. So one personality trait is people who trust their intuitions to a higher degree. So let me give you an example. There are many ways to test this, but here is one test. There's a little math problem. Okay. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, don't say anything yet. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten, the bats cost a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Most people, almost everybody, the first answer that jumped to their mind is 10 cents. And the question is uh, trying to lead you to that. Cost together $1.10, $1.0, $1 more, it kind of it kind of makes sense. So people just kind of jump with $0. ten cents. And some people say $0. ten cents. And some people check themselves. And the people that check themselves, well, they say a baseball bat cost a dollar more than the ball. If the ball was $0. ten cents, the bat would be a dollar ten. Together it's a twenty. No, it doesn't work. It has to be $0. ten cents less. It's $0. five cents and a dollar five. But There's a big separation between the people who trust their intuitions and the people who check themselves. And it turns out that's one of the personality traits that leads people down misbeliefs. It's because we see this information out there. And the question is, do you trust what you see or do you say, let me check it out?
0: As you were saying it, I was like, it's a dollar and 10 cents. And then I was like, no, that doesn't add up. Let's back it out and actually yeah. do the math.
2: Yeah. There's another way to think of this, which is called intellectual humility. And it's also a, it's a very nice term. Everybody wants to be with intellectual humility. But it's really about the fact that we don't feel that we need to have an answer right now. That it's okay to live with uncertainty. Right. Because it's better to, to do A or B. I don't know. Let me keep it in mind. I don't have to come up with an answer right now. That's another important trait so there are things like that that make it more and less likely by the way we talked about this idea that you have a picture with black and white dots and the people who create more connections between things are also more likely to go down the path of misbelief why is that (laughs) because just think about the stories the stories have so many connections these stories by the way and, and people's ability to connect dots and see patterns is a wonderful thing, right? It's not as if you would say, oh, it's terrible. No, no, huge amount of human inventions are brought about by this ability to see connection between things, but it's not just a blessing. You started the introduction by talking about trust, and this is actually incredibly important because yes, we have this machine, the funnel of this belief with the, with the four components: uh, stress, cognition, personality, social, But if you say, what does all of that mean for society? One of the important meaning is trust. And we need a lot of trust in society. We need to trust the government and we need to trust the banks and we need to trust that if we buy insurance, somebody will pay us back. We need to trust that the
0: stoplight is going to work. We can't really go anywhere without trusting that the other drivers on the road are going to follow the same rules that I'm going to follow.
2: And once trust is eroded, you pointed out to this very frightening situation that we're in, it does have a lot of negative effects. I called the book Misbelief because I think conspiracy theorists are kind of, by the way, sometimes conspiracy theorists are correct, right? They're conspiracy, but, but it's a type of thinking that has very little trust, right? Where every time you go to something, you say, what's the game? Who is trying to play one on me? Who is trying to, to do something? But it's not just about the people who get to completely no trust. It's every time we lose a little bit of trust, we lose something a society.
0: I want to talk about the money. I mean, we're a financial show I launched with a couple of examples of people taking information, bad information, bad advice online. Let me get to it in just a sec. We're going to take a very quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. You saved for years for college, and now that the kids are finally out of the house, it is time to put yourself first. It's time you took a look at all of your financial plans to see what you might need to change and how you can save and invest a little differently now that your life and your finances have found a little more freedom. That's why it's beyond time to schedule a complimentary wealth checkup today. At slash her money. We are back with Dan Ariely, author of the new book, Misbelief. When we talk about trust, and I think it's a very important concept, particularly in the world of finances, my advice to people really has been always trust but verify. Don't buy it if you don't understand it, ask your questions. There are people out there who want to make money by selling you stuff, and they don't necessarily have to tell you the truth in order to get you to pay up for those things. How does all of this research that you have done play a role in the world of trying to build a solid financial life?
2: Yeah. So first of all, let me say that I fully agree with you. And what I'm going to say now, it's very sad. So as people, we are wired to trust. Why are we wired to trust? Because we grew up evolutionary in a small group. And in a small group, people have a lot of interest in being truthful. Because everybody, let's say you're in a village with 200 people. If somebody breaks your trust, you will not only not talk to them again, you'll tell everybody, right? And this is why gossip, by the way, is such a such a. If you think about it, gossip is kind of the engine of the justice system and the police before we had justice system and the police because it really regulates behavior. So when we lived in small societies, the incentive in our wiring was to do things that are trustworthy. Now, That's our upbringing, right? Our evolutionary upbringing. It's not 100%, but it's our evolutionary upbringing. Now you put us in a very different situation. We're in a very different environment. And now the same conditions don't apply. You might never meet this person. You might not have any ability to reflect on what they're doing. They might think that you'll never discover. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening. And we need to understand that it's against our nature not to trust. But now. It's not such a good strategy, especially for big one-time decisions. You mentioned buying crypto. Those are very, very complex. As the world is becoming more disconnected, as reputation becomes less standard, we need to understand that we need to work against our nature. And it's very tough. I'll give you an even tougher example. Going to a doctor and asking that doctor to refer you to a second opinion. Really tough, right? You're basically telling your doctor, I don't trust you. Like really, really tough to do. Very few people can actually do it. Not because your doctor is not a great person, but just because they're colored by their own incentives. So I do think we need to realize that it's an area where our intuition is driving us in the wrong direction. And we need to do things to fight against it in a very, very tough way. So that's one. The second thing is the question of why don't people talk about money issues among themselves, right? Uh, it would be very tough to start a conversation around uh, with friends, like, oh, what's your credit card debt? It's a situation where people are guarding, they're not sharing. By the way, it's a, it's a very interesting question about how did we get there? Why? Why is it that we're not willing to share? Why are we not willing to ask for advice from our friends and, and so on? But that Lack of sharing, lack of information, is a huge barrier. Because, you know, if we, I don't know, wanted to find the best restaurant in town, we would ask our friends. Easily. But if we want to find whose advice should we take or who should be our life insurance broker or whatever, if we don't talk to anybody, we're missing a lot of information. And the service providers know that we don't talk to each other, right? So we actually, I think, we need to figure out how to talk to people, how to get advice. Like, I would love to know, Joe, who do you talk to? Who do you trust? Who you had good experience, bad experience, and so on.
0: Well, 80% of Americans age 18 to 41 say they get their financial advice on social media. Social media is big, right? They could be listening to me on social media or you on social media. But they could also be listening to somebody who is not doing research to figure out the right solutions or actually who is a bad actor. And so I wonder, how do you draw a line when it comes to your finances and when it comes to investing? One of the things that we know, particularly about women, is that we are sometimes a little late to the party. We're good at it when we do it, but because we don't feel we have all of the information, we are slow to start engaging. And yet if you can't trust the information that you're getting, we're never going to get there. And that is worse, I think, than making a mistake along the way once or twice. So how do you balance misbelief and misinformation with the fact that you actually need to do something in this area of your life? Similarly with health, you have a disease, you got to do something.
2: That's right. So I think we need to create a sense of urgency with a plan that we can change later on. So if you're basically saying to yourself, let me figure out the right investment approach and I will not start until I figured out the right solution, it will never happen or it will happen very late. But if you say, let me start with something that is solid and basic and so on, that's my default. I want to create a good default plan. Here's a plan, pick whatever big organization you believe, start doing automatic payment, start processing, and say, yes, I do want to do better, I do want to learn, I do, but I'm not going to wait to figure this out. And by the way, with investing, there's just a lot of things to figure out. There's a question to figure out where to invest, but there's also a question to figure out how much can I invest, and how much can I even put aside every month? And I think it's perfectly fine to say, I'll take solid bank A, solid investment B, start with an amount that I think, and and then I'll give myself some time demarcations where I'm going to try and exploring new things in those directions. But you're right that lack of confidence has the potential cost of basically deterring action. Like if you ask me, investment strategy A versus B, or starting early versus late, we would we would all say start early.
0: Start early and go boring. Go with the stayed boring, proven. Boring is better and you take some chances down the road. I totally agree. I'm holding my tongue on this question, but I'm going to ask it because we had a debate last night, the first Republican debate for the 2024 presidential election. Where do you think we are in our political cycle. What did you learn doing this research? And how do you think it's going to drive what happens as we go through the next year?
2: Yeah. So I wanted this book to come about a little bit more than a year before the election because I think it is a book about psychology, and it's a book about COVID and it's a book about misbeliefs, but it's also a book about what I think will happen in elections. And if you think about a term like shibboleth, that we said that it's not about the truth. You and I are talking about something, but I'm not really sharing information that is truthful. I'm sharing information about my identity. And we have reached a point of identity politics that is incredibly dangerous. Uh, We have unprecedented separation uh, where people on... Either side are saying that they don't want their kids to marry somebody with the opposite political affiliation. Where people are looking at the truth as something that we could wait for later, but we have bigger issues to deal with right now. Where people are saying things that they know that they don't mean, but it's a yeah. kind of a, a coded message to their followers. And if you think about mistrust what will happen to the US election. If you don't believe that the the politicians, if you don't believe that the election process is fair, if you don't think that votes are counted correctly, are you going to go out and participate? And participation is civic engagement is not just voting. There's other things about civic engagement. We contribute to our community. We help in all kinds of ways. So I think that the separation that is happening in this deterioration is actually hurting at the core of our society. You know, are we really one society? Um, I think the answer is less and less. Are we going to have the will to act together? There's all kinds of challenges that we need to face. You know, it starts from people pay taxes and uh, people pick up the trash and people recycle and people don't double park. And you think about the range of things we do as a society under the guidance that we're here together. There's just a lot of them. And we're, I think right now, especially with the political um, situation are hurting our ability to act together.
0: Is there something that individuals who wanna course correct, no matter which side of things you find yourself on, if it troubles you that we no longer feel like one society, are there little things that we can do to help get back on the right path?
2: Yeah, so I'm optimistic in general. I think it would take a long time I think it's a serious process. I think we need to work at it and it's not going to be simple. I think everybody's pointing at social media. If we only fix social media, it's not just social media. It's not going to be enough. So let's respond in two ways. On the level of trust, I think we need to practice trust. I think we need to start trusting, flex that muscle. And also realize that from time to time, trust will not be reciprocated and it's okay. It's kind of the cost of business. We're gaining a lot from trust. It's okay to give something. And I think this is, for example, the opposite of the trend of having bureaucracy and procedures for everything. So I think practicing trust on an individual level is one thing that is important. And then the other thing that is important in terms of misbelievers, like if you think about all the people who we want back into our lives, at some point, it's very hard to return people. But there's a long way in which we can return people. We can become their social support network. We can become a source of resiliency. And I'll give you one last trick. There's something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And the way I showed it in one experiment is I gave people a toilet, you know, a regular flush toilet. And I say, do you understand how toilets work? I say, yes, perfect. I said, okay, why don't you draw me one? People drew something and said, do you still feel you understand it well? Sir? maybe a little bit less. <laughs> and, and then I said, luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet. Why don't you try and assemble it? And of course, nobody could assemble it. And then they understood how much they don't understand. Now, with a lot of these misbeliefs, that's really what's happened right? People all of a sudden think they truly understand all kinds of things. They understand how democracy works, they understand how viruses work, they understand how G5 works, they, people think they understand. Using the tricks from the explanatory depth helps, right? Instead of taking somebody and say, you're telling me now that the votes don't count, or you tell me now that the virus, how does the virus work? Help me understand how it works. Now it doesn't fix things completely. But if we said we get into a, a condition of more questioning, that really helps. And interestingly, if I ask you about the virus and you don't understand, but, but you know, maybe for you the virus is such a hot topic, I don't want to talk about it. Even asking you to explain to me how a zipper works or how something else, most people don't understand how a zipper works. That creates a halo effect where people start questioning their understanding of all kinds of things. So basically not going against people, You know, the moment you go against somebody, people stand their guard, they protect themselves, they don't listen to you, they counter-argue. No, go with them. Go with them on a journey and try to help them understand that their beliefs might not be based on such solid ground as they think it is. So I would say social support and thinking about the grounds on which they're building their beliefs.
0: Dan Ariely, the book is Misbelief. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Always amazing to have you here. And if people are looking for more information on you, where would you send them?
2: My website, danarieely.com.
0: Amazing. Thank you again.
2: Lovely to see you again.
0: Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors.
2: Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, foul play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to foul play crime series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4...
0: And we're back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky is joining me. Hey, Jules. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I was remembering as I was talking to Dan, and I could just talk to Dan forever. He is just so brilliant, that when you were little and Jake was little and we used to go to the grocery store, we would play this game at the checkout with all the magazines and the headlines on the magazines where we would talk about which magazines you could believe
1: and which ones you couldn't. Do you remember that? I remember that game, of course. It was like Us Weekly and Star. And I remember like seeing Britney Spears when she had shaved her head. And that was like the magazine we were always looking at, right? The magazine, right? And it was Yes, You Can Believe People
0: magazine. And maybe with some of the tabloidy ones, you can't believe it. And Am I wrong, but did you take a class in college in media literacy?
1: Sounds right.
0: (laughs) They're starting to teach that in college. They're starting to teach media literacy, health literacy, financial literacy, of course, because there's so much information afoot that often I think people don't know what to believe in. And as Dan said, they go down this rabbit hole where they wind up believing things that are patently untrue and then defending those things to their peers. Totally. Do you have friends in your network or your social circle or people in your network who tell you things that you know are wrong? I don't think I'm
1: friends with those people anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You are definitely not alone. Let's take some questions. All right, let's get into it. Our first question today comes to us from Lana. She writes, Hi, Jean. Thank you for all you do to help women. Your podcast has taught me so much over the years. I would be grateful for a bit of guidance. My husband and I are fortunate to be in a good financial standing despite these uncertain times. We're in our early 40s, mortgages paid off, and we have no student loans, car loans, or other debt. We contribute the federal maximum to our 401k plans, the maximum to our HSAs, and we're child-free. My career field often experiences layoffs, so I have over $100,000 in a high-yield saving account, making 5% interest that helps me feel secure. We also have a few CDs with staggered maturity rates, totaling around $200,000 that earn just over 5%. We can afford to save even more. So I'm wondering where to put our money next and, if possible, to consider any tax advantages. We earn too much, each over $150,000, to contribute to a Roth IRA. But should we still contribute to our traditional IRA, albeit without those contributions being tax deductible? Would we pay taxes on the gains? Given the economic climate, the high-yield savings feel like the safest choice but of course the interest is taxed. I'm just not sure if I could get a higher rate of return with investing. Is the next step a brokerage account, perhaps with a target date fund? I'm not yet well-versed enough to manually manage a portfolio, but also prefer to avoid paying someone to manage it as I tend to be the set it and forget it type. We're both a bit behind on our retirement savings, each having started saving around age 32. So I want to be sure we're making up for some lost savings in our 20s. My financial goals are simply to retire comfortably, possibly even early, and to continue traveling frequently and as long as possible. Thanks for any guidance you may have.
0: Well, boy, oh boy. I mean, I'm reading your letter, Lana, listening to Julia describe the situation. I don't know how it's possible that you could feel like you are behind on retirement savings. You sound like you are doing amazingly well. But just for anybody who is wondering what it means to be on time or behind with retirement savings, I tend to fall back on some benchmarks that were established by Fidelity Investments a number of years ago. And basically, they lay out that you should have one times your annual income put away for retirement in your 30s, three times in your 40s, six times in your 50s. Eight times in your 60s, and by the time you retire, about 10 times your annual income. So take a look at what you've got put away and see if those numbers sound like they make sense to you. My guess is that you're either on track or you are getting there. But if you're not, then yeah, putting some money in a taxable IRA is a great way to stash some additional money. And you're right, you do have to pay taxes on that money before you make the contribution. But the benefit there is that the money will grow tax deferred. So you won't have to pay taxes along the way, which allows it to grow faster. And when you pull the money out, it'll be taxed as ordinary income. The alternative is to put the money into a brokerage account, a taxable brokerage account. And in those accounts, you will find lots of set it and forget it type of investments. There are ETFs, for example, that are already asset allocated for you. We've been doing some work with iShares and they have a portfolio of ETFs that are asset allocated ETFs. So you could choose one of those. It would be a low cost investment. You could buy a balanced Fund, which would get you into a 60 40 portfolio and would retain that ratio for as long as you're in that fund. The most important thing, I think, is to make sure that all of these investments are working together to keep you on track to your goals. And for that reason, I might suggest that you have a meeting with a financial advisor. It doesn't have to be somebody that you pay over the long-term. It could be somebody that you meet with once, you get a plan that you are then able to follow over the long-term, but it'll give you some guidance for if you wanna retire in your mid-50s, how much you have to save in order to get there and how much you'll be able to spend after you retire before you hit social security in order to continue to live the lifestyle you want. It involves a lot of scenario planning and running the numbers. And I think sort of based on the way that you have articulated your financial life, doing something like that would make a lot of sense. We've got a lot of content on her money as far as how to find a financial advisor. If you're looking for somebody who's A one and done financial advisor rather than somebody who will manage your assets on an ongoing basis, I'd point you to something called the Garrett Planning Network, G A R R E T T. That's a network of financial advisors who are willing to work by the hour. So it sounds to me that that would be a really good fit for you.
1: Let me just ask you a question. Sure. Are you saying that in three years, I should have one salary's worth in savings? Or are you saying at like 39, I should have one salary's worth in savings? I'm saying at
0: some point in your 30s, you should have one salary's worth in savings. And you have been making a Roth IRA contribution every year. You've been putting the full $6,500 a year into a Roth IRA retirement account. So if you multiply that by, I don't know, 12, right? 14, even if that money isn't growing, which by the way, it is, you're gonna get there. So you are on track to do that. The multiplier effect comes in when you start making more money. And at that point, you have to really make sure that your contributions to your retirement accounts, and I know that you're in your 401k at work as well, you have to make sure that your contributions to your retirement account keep pace with the amount that you're earning so that you're actually going to get there. One of the problems with the way that 401k plans are set up and the matching dollars is that they default people to making a 3% contribution. And 3 percent's typically not enough. Generally, you have to save about 15% in total of whatever it is you're making in order to get there. Okay,
1: cool. Yeah, feel better. Let's go on. All right. Our next question today comes to us from Karen. She writes, hello, I am a longtime listener of the podcast and I have recommended it to many friends. Thanks, Karen. I have a question about 529 plans that I cannot find a good answer to. I have two young kids, eight and five, and right now we just have one 529 that we're contributing $1,000 a month to. My thought was that if my older child gets a scholarship or decides that college is not the right choice, then we could just roll the money into an account for my younger one. Would it impact financial aid for the older child if there's a larger sum of money in the account than there would be if we created separate accounts for the two kids? What are the pros and cons of one account versus one per child? Thanks in advance for any advice.
0: It's a really good question, Karen. I don't think that we've actually gotten it before. When it comes to financial aid, the Financial aid application will ask if you have money in a 529, but 529s are treated pretty favorably when it comes to financial aid, so I wouldn't worry too much about that particular impact on your child. But there are benefits to having two separate accounts. And the biggest one is that you can customize the investments for each child. And so when we think about how we invest for any goal, as we get closer to that goal, whether it's college or retirement, we want to take less risk. Because if the markets were to really tumble right before you retired, say, or right before your child went to college, it could make a big dent in your 529 that you would be really, really disappointed to see. And that could make it harder to pay for college based on all of the different planning that you've done. And so we invest aggressively, typically when our children are in elementary school, When they're in middle school, we invest moderately. And by the time they're in high school, we invest more conservatively. Because of the three-year age difference in your child, you want to invest slightly differently Mm -hmm. for them. You also then have the ability to move the money back and forth between them once a year. So I would set up a separate account for both kids. I just split the contribution, put 500 for each, knowing that you'll make it up for the younger child on the back end with additional contributions. And if you get to the point where you close in on college for your older child, and it's pretty clear that they're either going to get a major scholarship or they don't want to go then you can back off putting money into that first 29 and heavy up the contributions to the second one. Or you can just stop, take your foot off the gas, and wait to see what happens if you feel like you've got enough saved to pay for one full tuition. That's how I would do it. And just for the record, I had 529s for both Julia and for Jake. And when Jake went to college and there was money left in his account – I moved it over to Julia's account and have just continued to move it around for other members of the family. So, very very easy to do.
1: I think you answered that one.
0: I think so. 529s are are complicated, but they work and and it it always felt good to write checks to Syracuse right out of that 529 and know that the money was there. You know, it felt a little bit like Free money because I had put it aside so much earlier.
1: I hate to tell you this, but that is girl math. What do you mean? Saying it was free money. So that is girl math. Define girl math. Girl math is when the numbers are fake numbers, but they're real numbers. So you just said it was fake money, but you've been saving it all these years. So you. I said it felt like free money. Yeah, that's girl math. You know, I really did not
0: like girl math. I put something on my reels on Instagram. I know, and that's why I'm calling
1: you out. You just did some girl math.
0: The idea that you amortize wares of high-priced items of clothing, and it's only costing $10 a wear, right? That's some girl math as well.
1: Well, sure, but you just did girl math, so you just need to own it.
0: All right, I check myself. Thank you, Julia. And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobeer. I'm the co-host of MindShift the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our
1: kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people.
0: You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom.
2: It holds a lot about how we want students and young
0: people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with your money tip of the week. We have all been there. An email or DM pops up that promises us 3,000% returns or a sure way to beat the market. These can be really tempting when the market is so volatile, but my advice, delete, block, repeat. Still, you may be wondering where are all these two good to be true promises coming from? Sometimes it's something called a bucket shop. A bucket shop is a shady brokerage house that looks for unsuspecting marks and tries to convince them that companies of questionable value, often penny stocks on the brink of bankruptcy, are the next NVIDIA or Tesla. Their goal is to get more suckers in to boost the price of the stock so that those who already have a position can get out with a profit, kind of like a pyramid scheme. When it comes to investing, there is no magic bullet. Invest with every paycheck, put money into your retirement accounts first for the tax advantages, grab every matching dollar, rebalance at least once a year, rinse and repeat. And if you're looking... To learn how to pick individual stocks for real, check out Investing Fix, the investment club for women that I host with CNBC's Karen Feinerman, who is also the host of the amazing podcast, How She Does It. We picked NVIDIA before it went on its run, but what we're really all about is learning what makes markets move, what makes investments work or not, and boosting our confidence together. Join us and the hundreds of women who are on this journey and find out more at investingfix.com. Investingfix, by the way, has two X's. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Dan Ariely for breaking down why we believe some things that just aren't true. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.